Hello, and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's episode, we'll continue our introduction to the book of Ezekiel, picking up where we left off with our first impressions and background. As we zoom out to look big picture at the structure of the book and its unique qualities, we'll gain some significant insights into the relationship between judgment and hope and the probing nature of God. Okay, so enough of the background. Let's get into this. We want to give a drive-by summary of the way that the book unfolds so that we can draw important lessons from that and flesh that out in our lives. So here it goes. Ezekiel opens first chapters with a really important kind of preface, this introduction that not only shows us a vision of God to get us through the whole book, but God's vision for his prophet, for this ministry, why it's happening, why his people need it to explain all the prophecies and conversations that are coming after that. So we see in chapter 2, God speaking and calling Ezekiel and saying, These descendants, these people are stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are rebellious, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, human, don't be afraid of them or their words. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear. But you, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So there's this important introduction, the first three chapters, and the prophet is prepared for his stubborn audience, for their hardened hearts. But the important thing is that God's word be spoken and heard, that that his position, his vision be known to the people, whether they refuse to hear or whether they actually listen. So then you get into the first major section of the book up to like chapter 24. So the first half just dealing with these judgments against the people. God speaks through this called prophet Ezekiel, and in many ways, with many rhetorical strategies and vivid images, he is trying to get them to confront and engage with this reality that they are doing everything they can to put out of their minds. These deported Jewish people on the Kibar Canal have been banking on God's promises to them in all the wrong ways. They have this covenant relationship with God, and he's promised things to them, like the land of Israel and the special place of Jerusalem where his temple is, and the line of David. But they don't realize how they've broken and abandoned that relationship with God that all of those benefits come from. So they're living with this cynical, disillusioned perspective and this hardened heart. And Ezekiel gives all of these prophecies, all of these sign acts to give one last shot for them to acknowledge what God is saying to them before it all comes crashing down, before the city is destroyed. 
So while the people are trying to block out what's happening with Jerusalem and their brains, Ezekiel builds this clay brick model of the whole city right in front of them with signs showing what's happening to it. And while the people think, well, at least we've got the temple, nothing can happen to that. Ezekiel has this crazy vision where he's given this tour of all the terrible things happening in the temple and the glory of God, his special presence leaves. Talk about an existential crisis. That's like the backbone for Israel's religion. And he sees it leave. When the people think that, well, you know, at least I have this kind of untouchable privilege because I'm an Israelite. You know, I have this special relationship with God. Ezekiel presents this shocking, offensive parable about an adulterous wife who prostitutes herself and abuses all the resources of her husband in graphic ways. And side note, if, if we read those parts of the Bible and we think, man, that is terrible, good, that, that's the point, it is terrible. His audience is shocked and getting them to think, is this what I'm doing in my relationship with God, this shocking, offensive behavior, approach, denial? So all of those kinds of things are happening when chapter 24 hits. The big finale, it all comes crashing down. It's over. News comes to the exiles. The city has fallen. And in this tragic and poetic way, it mirrors what's happening in Ezekiel's own life because at the same time, his wife dies. And he's mourning. But he, he can't express that mourning to the people. So there's the events in Ezekiel's own life, and it's kind of on parallel with what's happening with Jerusalem. And all of it is just hitting home at us, tugging at our core emotions, just shocking us and waking us up to the realities we've wanted to ignore, but now we just can't any longer. So that is the turning point. Halfway through the book, it all comes crashing down. 586, Jerusalem falls. But now there's a shift. Now there's the shift from judgment to hope. And it starts out with more judgments against all the nations. Judgments against Ammon and Moab and Edom and Philistia and Tyre and Sidon and, and typical Hebrew poetry fashion and prophetic style. These prophecies amp up and amp up till we get to these Tyre... Satan origin story type prophecies of mythical proportions of just all that God thinks of these wicked nations and what they've done and what will happen. But remember, this is in the, the hopeful section after that reality has all come crashing down and the people face that. There's now this message of God's justice coming, of the enemies of his people being addressed. And then starting in chapter 33 is when we get these powerful, hopeful promises of restoration, the valley of dry bones type stuff. Now for all of the first part of the book, the judgments against Judah and God's people, 
God told Ezekiel that he would be silenced, that, that he wouldn't be able to speak, and that that itself would be a sign unless he was you know, given a prophecy by God. But once that news came, once it was all over, God opens Ezekiel's mouth again. He can once again be with the people and speak to them. And there's different tone to what he's saying, to what God is declaring to the people. There will be a new shepherd, a new leader rising up among God's people in place of these wolves that have taken advantage of them. In the face of what looks like dry bones, just utter devastation and hopelessness, God can bring them back to life, restore hope, restore these promises that the people have abused in the right way, not banking on them in the wrong way, but in the right way that God intended. The ultimate enemies of God's people, pictured as Gog, this nation, is finally and ultimately destroyed. And then in the last eight chapters, we see Ezekiel's vision of a new temple, a new land, a new united people. Whereas his glory was seen leaving in a vision in chapters 8 through 11, it now is in full display in a holy society where evil is not found anywhere and where God's people once again enjoy that careful relationship with him. Okay, so that's a drive-by summary of the way that the book unfolds. Now, what can we draw from that? What does that tell us about our own lives today and our own relationship with God and what he's after? Well, think about the structure of the book. So we've got three chapters of this important introduction. Then we have the first half of the book, laying out these vivid judgments, these shocking images and rhetorical strategies until finally chapter 24 hits and they're confronted with this reality of judgment. It's unavoidable. And then there's a turning point and there's messages of hope. And that comes into play first with messages of justice and judgment against their enemies and their oppressors, and then in these vivid promises of restoration and life with God. Now, I think what that structure tells us is that the diagnosis of judgment has to be accepted for the cure of hopeful promises to mean anything. The diagnosis of judgment has to be accepted for the cure of hopeful promises to mean anything. Now, that in itself might not seem that radical or unique. That's more of a general Christian idea, right? That until we understand we're sinners in need of grace, grace isn't going to mean anything, right? But when we look at the scope of that reality in Ezekiel, the different angles we're given on it, I think we'll find something really profound. Let's just think about that middle section of the book. Immediately after this massive turning point where the news finally arrives, Jerusalem has fallen, we're given eight more chapters of scathing judgments against the nations. Why? If condemnation and judgment are just the precursor to genuine hope, then why haven't we moved past it yet? 
Why do these judgments against the nations show up in a place where we expect to see prophecies about life restored to the way it should be? Well, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're digging a little deeper into the relationship between judgment and hope in the Bible. When we dig deep into Ezekiel, we may find that judgment and hope are not so much two opposite extremes as much as they are two sides of the same coin. So our culture has grown hypersensitive to messages of condemnation. And I think that sensitivity has seeped into most of us Christians as well. I mean, who, after all, wants to invest in a message or a messenger who only cares about denouncing everything we're about, our identity, our behavior. So if we come to realize that literally standing up on trash cans and yelling at people about hell and doing nothing else isn't a very faithful way of communicating the gospel, I think we can all agree that's a good thing, right? But then that sensitivity brings some challenges. Like, what do we do with Ezekiel? Because Ezekiel has all of these messages of judgment, and not only that, but they're like amped up, they're scathing, they're vivid, they're shocking. So if we let that strangeness, that shock push us away from the book, then we're missing out on so much. Now, what happens when we engage that and let it hit us? Well, Ezekiel provides a crucial contribution to the good news of Scripture. When that sensitivity to condemnation develops into a kind of stiff-necked insistence that anything goes in life, Ezekiel is there insisting on a difference between right and wrong, justice and injustice, beauty and perversion, the way things are and the way things could be, should be, and will be. Within the universe that we have made for ourselves, the positive promises of God are at most just a fascination. Remember, Ezekiel's like this entertainer for the people, but they don't do what he says. At worst, those promises are just an enabler for terrible kinds of thoughts and actions and ways of life. Check out Ezekiel chapter 22. This is in the part where God is laying out these judgments against the people. In 26, he says, Jerusalem's priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They've made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between clean and unclean. They've disregarded my Sabbaths, so I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain, and her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The good news is a new world order, establishing right in the place of wrongs, justice in the place of injustice, beauty in place of perversion. So the idea that grace and forgiveness and hope are polar opposites to judgment is completely foreign to the Bible. Again, think of that middle section, the judgment against the nations. If God doesn't judge anything, then what hope are we left with? 
What kingdom, what world are we saved into if nothing changes about the world? I mean, what does the cross of Jesus mean if not a dealing with sin, an address of evil, an eradication of what's wrong with us, with the world? Think of the book of Revelation, the way everything ends in history, chapters 20 to 22. Yes, we like to focus on those streets of gold, that vision of the new Jerusalem. But what makes that possible? It's Revelation chapter 20, where Christ judges evil, separates death and Hades, binds the serpent, makes way for all that's good about Revelation 21 and 22 to happen. And Revelation 21, 8 It's the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, all liars and so forth, who are separated out of this new life and city, whose portion is the second death. There's this purging of what's wrong and evil so that the goodness of God's new creation, new work, can really come into play. Within the universe we've made for ourselves, the positive promises of God are at most just a fascination and at worst an enabler for those terrible ways of life. But within God's economy, the good news is a new world order, establishing right in the place of wrong, justice in place of injustice, beauty in place of perversion. And to envision this truly good world, let alone participate in it, requires a thorough dismantling of the subtle ways of wickedness. It requires a disorienting spotlight on the crevices where darkness likes to hide, a rude awakening from the deathbed that we've made for ourselves. So there are many ways that the Lord uses the prophet to bring about this reawakening. And Ezekiel is the master of poking and prodding and probing what we're doing with God's promises, especially when we've gotten so used to manipulating them that we can't even tell we're doing it anymore. So that leads to the second major takeaway for this episode. Ezekiel is constantly probing and prodding and chasing down the ways that we misunderstand and misapply God's promises, so that we can really understand and apply them like we're supposed to, so we can bank on them in the right way. Ezekiel is all about chasing down the half-truths we live on that cause us to miss out on the full truth. All right, even I'm getting the sense that I'm starting to ramble. So let's just take a minute to tie all this together before we move on. How did we start talking about a new world order and the probing nature of Ezekiel? Well, remember from last week, we said that we actually miss out on so much of Ezekiel when we isolate its different parts. And today we fleshed out why that is as we gave a quick overview of how the book unfolds. The section of hope at the end tells us about the ultimate goal of all the judgments before them. But the 32 chapters of judgment leading up to it tell us that hope without change and justice and recognition and repentance isn't true hope at all. The problem was never that the people had nothing to believe in to get them through their hardships. 
The problem was that what was getting them through was all wrong, all twisted and distorted. They were banking on half-truths that kept them from facing their real problems and their real solutions. So the structure of Ezekiel is not arbitrary. It's actually core to its message. In the first half of the book, God is intent on confronting his people with his own perspective, a true take on life and death and judgment and hope and how that related to the city they put all their hope in and so forth. But there comes a point in the book when they finally accept what he's been trying to tell them because they they just can't deny it anymore. Jerusalem actually falls like God warned and promised, and there was no more possibility of freeing themselves from Babylon, their oppressive ruler. And at that point, when they acknowledge what God has been trying to tell them about life and death and judgment and hope, the tone of the book changes. The prophecies have a different purpose because those barriers that they put up are all dismantled. There's not that risk of being completely misunderstood. So when they hear God proclaim the restoration he will bring about in the future, they know it's not going to be because of their privileged entitlement or untouchable temple or glorious state capital, because that's all gone now. They know it's going to be because of the gracious relationship that they have with God, made possible by his spirit in them, enabling them to live life in step with his way of life. And that's something the book will uncover and we'll touch on later on. So hopefully that makes a little bit more sense about how we're getting from point A to point B here in this episode. And hopefully that starts to piece together some of the stuff we touched on last week too. I posed the question last week, why would a prophet sent to exiles in Babylon focus so much on what's happening and will happen in Jerusalem? Well, now we can see why. It was never just about the politics or what happened to them. It was about what they had thought of their relationship with God. Because Jerusalem was part of their worldview. Jerusalem was more than just a city that defended its inhabitants. It was a symbol that defended their distorted way of life. Now, of course, the problem was not the promises, whether promises related to the land of Israel or promises related to the coming king from David's line. The problem was their misapplication and misunderstanding of those backbones to their faith the core promises the covenant relationship was made of. They ignored the demands that these promises entailed in terms of how they lived, what they thought, how they related to God, all the while manipulating them to cope with the disasters surrounding them in ways that were comfortable for them. So the abuses basically boiled down to two lies that they used God's promises to tell themselves. First one being, We are untouchable in every sense of the word because we're a part of this special divine community. And the second was this sentimental, self-serving half-truth that blindly assured them all will be well. It's going to be okay no matter what you say because God is there to make it better. Now, obviously, that perception they had of themselves is untouchable and that perception of their happy future 
as something guaranteed were closely related. But it all stemmed from what they were doing with God's promises. God had been warning them through the prophets over and over, you've broken this relationship. You forfeited those privileges, and I will bring the consequences of the terrible things you've done against other people and against me fully on your head. So wake up, turn back to me. But the people insisted, nah, no way. You can't be speaking for God because those promises he's given us allow us to believe we're untouchable and so is our future. And we've hardened ourselves in the belief so many times over that you're never going to get through to us. So in comes the Spirit of God to Ezekiel, and chapter after chapter, he probes and prods and shocks and shakes them up for one last try of snapping them out of it. Like Jesus chases down the rabbit trails of the woman at the well, Ezekiel meets his audience at every line of defense they've set up to keep them from facing the full reality and full demands of what God's telling them. It's kind of like those action movies uh, or video games where you can't get to the supervillain until you take down all the lines of defense. Like, you can't get to Thanos until you take away all the Infinity Stones. You can't take down the Death Star until you take out that one small part of the hulking thing that's keeping it from exploding. You can't get to that thing unless you get past all the enemy ships firing at you. It's kind of like that. God just telling these exiles, destruction is still coming from Jerusalem, and you need to trust what I'm saying and live accordingly. Like, that's just going to hit a force field. Nothing. It doesn't phase them. So God shakes them up with shocking messages to snap them out of it. He unravels all the lies that are functioning like barriers to what he's trying to tell them. So what are some of those barriers? What do we see in the book of Ezekiel in our little survey of the structure? Well, one of the barriers are these half-truths, right? They're not just making things up out of thin air to defend their way of life. They're, they're kind of... They're half-truths. They're, you know, the promises about the land, promises about their people. It's not all wrong. It's just the way they're thinking about it and the way they're using it is not true to the original intent and message of that promise, Um, like with Jerusalem. Another obstacle barrier is honestly like the lack of consequences. You see this in chapter 12, starting in verse 21, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, what is this proverb that you have heard about the land of Israel saying, the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. Tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to this proverb and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say to them, the days are near and the fulfillment of every vision. So yes, all these prophets had been rising up and saying, look, judgment is coming it's not over yet. The city is going to be devastated. It's going to be all over, but it wasn't happening yet. And just the lack of consequences for these warnings and what God seemed to be saying was another level, another barrier that was keeping them from really hearing what he was trying to say. Now, in all of these barriers, I think we can see the overlap in our own lives the different types of barriers we set up, the half-truths we believe, the lack of consequences that make these things seem less real. 
So what else? Well, there's competing voices. Right after, in chapter 13, there's all of these denouncements of false prophets, all these people just kind of telling them what they already want to hear, and that reinforcing their mentality that they can get away um, with living this other way. They had these competing voices supporting them in what they wanted to do. What else? Well, there's a general distrust in God's character and ways of doing things. Chapter 18 is this kind of extended dialogue, God calling out the people saying, you think I'm the one being unjust here? Okay, let's flesh that out. Let's talk about this. I'm not the one who's guilty here. It's you, actually. I'm not just randomly giving punishments to people's children when it's really the parents whose fault it is. No, this is your community's guilt that I'm talking about. It's almost like the book of Romans like fleshing out the thought of God, justifying his actions from his perspective, setting things straight. So that's another barrier, that distrust in God's character and ways. And we also see this sort of constant, careful chasing down of popular proverbs. We even saw that in chapter 12, that proverb about, you know, all visions coming to nothing. These are sayings among the people that reflect their mentalities. They reflect their values, their ways of life. And that's one angle that Ezekiel uses to probe into their hearts, get past that line of defense and say, and kind of, he turns those proverbs on their head. He gives them different meaning to help them wake up to what they're misunderstanding. So just by looking at the structure of the book Ezekiel for today, by flying by at 30,000 feet and seeing the way the book unfolds, already we have rich lessons and insights for our own lives. We can see the unique contribution that this book is making to all of Scripture. In one sense, when we see the turning point in chapter 24 and messages of judgment still coming after, we understand that Judgment and hope have a more complex relationship than just problem and solution. They're more like two sides of the same coin. It's the promise that God will make things right that assures us we have a future worth seeing when he steps in to deliver us from evil. But Ezekiel also, in its own brilliant, shocking, strange, and captivating way, probes into the evil that's in us. Throughout Ezekiel, God probes his people's abuses of his promises. He's chasing down the subtle ways that we misuse them so that we can bank on them the way they were meant to be. Ezekiel is all about chasing down the half-truths that we live on that cause us to miss the full truth we need. And that's not something to run from. It's something to embrace. It's a world of goodness to step into because we need that disorienting spotlight to shine all the crevices of darkness, the subtle ways of wickedness. We should welcome being woken up to seeing the subtle ways we abuse God's promises so that we can have a more confident trust in him to know we're hoping in the right way. Now, I want to do more than just draw out some unique contributions here on the structure. I I really want to flesh out for us the impact that I think that this can have on our lives and the intersection with culture. 
And one thing I couldn't really get out of my head as I was thinking about this was this certain Christian culture that is hyper-focused on critiquing and questioning people's faith and church and from the pulpit. So I could easily see, you know, someone listening to this and hearing about how judgment isn't really a bad thing, but a needed thing, and how we need to be probed for the subtle ways that we're not really banking on God's promises like we could, like we should. And I could see someone taking that and saying, yes, we need to be doing this in church all the time. We need to be saying, are you really saved? Do you really trust Jesus so that our people aren't deceived so that, you know, they can really come to know Christ like they're supposed to. Uh, but I think that can be dangerous. So I just want to take some time to flesh out the difference between that and, and what I'm trying to talk about here. So for one thing, we're talking about the book of Ezekiel and the prophet Ezekiel and God's ministry through him. Ezekiel was controlled by the Spirit, not just his own perceptions. The critiques and judgment that he presented were indictments of what God alone had seen in their inner thoughts and heart's desires, the very kinds of things that we can't see on our own. So at the very least, we should be really hesitant to draw a direct parallel between what God is doing through Ezekiel and what we should be doing for other people based on what we think about their genuineness. Okay, now that said, there is an overlap, I think, in that Ezekiel is speaking to a mixed crowd. Everyone thinks they belong to this group of God's people, and everyone thinks they're getting the benefits of that. But while some people are physically present in the community, they've rejected God by their words and actions. They presume upon the promises of God without truly accepting all that they entail. And so you end up with a mixed crowd of sincere and insincere followers of the Lord. Just like that was the case for Ezekiel's audience in the Kibar Canal, I think it's true of our churches today. It's a mixed crowd. Now, without pointing at people in the pews and saying, Bobby, are you truly saved? There's the opportunity to proclaim God's justice and what he thinks of sin and corruption in all its subtle forms, and let that have its different effect in the different types of people in the crowd. So for the people who are presuming upon God's promises without truly accepting all they mean, the probing vision of a holy God can help to break down the sentimental half-truths they've been banking on. It can help for them to see their need for the full truth instead. And for genuine, faithful Christians, instead of trying to plague them with doubts about how genuine they are, the probing proclamations of God's wrath against evil can help to root us in that covenant relationship that makes the difference the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, judgment is not the polar opposite of mercy and grace. Judgment is God's declaration of right and wrong, good and evil, justice and injustice. Judgment is the Lord drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is life and light and beauty, and here's how you've fallen in with death and hideous darkness. Even for those who are appropriately trusting in the promises of God, we need to see those lines drawn from time to time to remember what the standard is, what the holiness is that we're called to, what the wrath is that we've been saved from, not just the trouble that God was obligated to rescue us from. So I do think 
Ezekiel's larger themes about the relationship between judgment and hope has some significant lessons for the way we talk about God's wrath and justice in church. The way we listen to it talked about from the pews, what we do with those messages when we hear them. But I think it would be kind of a shame if a church did a series on Ezekiel and the only takeaway for 13 weeks in a row was God's holy wrath means you need to be forgiven through Jesus. Now, I'd take that over ignoring Ezekiel altogether because that's not wrong. But if God's wrath is just the super scary incentive that we use to get people to come to the altar, then we have to ask ourselves if we're really ready to jump to the last section of Ezekiel and proclaim the Valley of Dry Bones, or if we need to sit for 32 chapters and the judgment first to really get it. What is God angry about and why? Now, that's what the book of Ezekiel is so focused on for so long, and that's a much more helpful message for the mixed crowd in our churches, I think, than just, Bobby, are you really saved? So while there is overlap between Ezekiel's community and our communities, while it's appropriate to present these kinds of messages and warnings to all different kinds of people, I do think there's another major difference between what I'm talking about here and the aggressive finger-pointing culture that's constantly asking, are you really saved? And that has to do with the brilliant way that God probes in Ezekiel, like we talked about. So, so yes, Ezekiel was an Old Testament spokesman for God, not a 21st century pastor or small group leader. And we should be cautious of thinking we possess that same kind of divine insight into people's souls. But more than that, one of the most frustrating things about the hypercritical cultures I've seen is that they're not presenting people with a problem to think about as much as they're pushing people to question themselves. Are you trusting God enough? Do you really trust God for your salvation? Are you trusting God completely? Well, I don't know. Am I? Like, like, what do you want me to do with that? I don't think that's really what Ezekiel is doing. He, he's about as concrete as you can get. He's the master of sign acts. The very things that the people were trying to block out of their minds, he visualized with stage props right in front of them. He played off their popular sayings and proverbs. God said, so this is the way you think, right? It's a running joke for you? Well, is that really what I've told you? Okay, let's think about it. You say, Jerusalem is the pot. We're the choice meat. We're the best part. You want to be the meat? All right, yeah. Jerusalem is the pot, and you're cooking in it. You food poisoned the meal with the blood that you shed in this pot, made it a moldy, rusty, inedible mess. So I will clean out the pot. I, I will dump out the blood and expose it for everyone to see. I'll char the whole thing clean, cook through the meat and even its bones. Do you see the difference there? Yes, Ezekiel is intentionally shocking and offensive, but ultimately what he's after is probing the very concrete ways we have manipulated God's promises and justified our hypocritical behavior. So Ezekiel invites us to dig deeper into what the promises of God really mean, what they're really after, what they really expect from us. And at the same time, to dig deeper into how well our thoughts, our words, our actions, our life mottos, our Bible-quoting habits actually square with those promises. Now, I think that might be an intersection with Christian culture and maybe a little bit more applicable to leaders in the church. 
So I want to make sure that I'm not being hypocritical about this myself and give a more concrete example. Now, we talked about a lot of different kinds of barriers that Ezekiel's audience put up that kept them from engaging with the realities of what God says about life and death and judgment and hope. And the obstacles came in all different kinds of forms, right? Half-truths, a general lack of consequences, uh, competing voices, distrust in God's character and ways of doing things, uh, even chasing down these uh, popular proverbs, life mottos that reflected their thoughts and their hearts. And as we think about those categories of barriers that we too put up, I think it's easier to see the ways that we relate to the problems and the sins that God confronted in Ezekiel. So let's think about an example of that today. I think the way we talk about heaven in the U.S. comes pretty close to a modern manifestation of the all-will-be-well sentimental half-truth that keeps us from the full demands of the actual promise God gives us. I remember watching an episode of the show Parenthood from season two. Uh, the episode's called Damage Control. There's this really moving dialogue that happens throughout the whole episode between Julia and Joel, that parents, as they're talking through what to tell their young daughter about her pet bird that just died. And the conversation goes like this. Julia says, Things look sad when they're dead. Great observation, honey. Mortality makes you snippy. I just feel uncomfortable lying to Sid. Well, all right, we'll tell her, yeah? We'll tell her, yeah. Good. What should we say? I was thinking something along the lines of, um, the bird is dead. You like that? Well, that's a little harsh. What else can we say? I, I mean, it's nature. It's harsh. Well, does she need to know at age six that nature's harsh? If Sid lived on a farm, she'd have seen death a hundred times by now. Let's move to a farm. She's so innocent and happy, and she doesn't understand. It's just, who wants to bring that little surprise to the party? Well, if we bring up heaven, it'll be a lot less scary. No. I mean, I know you and I probably aren't going, but funny. What exactly are you going to tell her about heaven? Normal stuff. You mean the made-up stuff? Yeah, the made-up stuff. I don't want to lie to her. You don't know that it's lying. You don't know. Exactly, you don't know. That's the point. That's what faith is. You don't know. Okay, so then later in the episode, there's another scene of them talking together, trying to figure this out. And now Sydney's in the room, the daughter, and they're telling her. So the daughter says, she died? When? Uh, just like an hour ago. Yeah. Maybe if we put water on her, she might wake up. Actually, sweetie, no, that's... When you die, that's it. Forever? Yeah. Well, that's sad. It is. It is sad, Bug. It's sad. So everything dies? Yeah, pretty much, hon, the dad says. But you know, um, that's kind of the beauty of the world, you know? It, it's not permanent. Are you and Daddy going to die? Am I going to die? Mom says, not for a really, really long time. Yeah, like a hundred years. I don't want you to die. I would miss you. 
And the mom jumps in, well, you don't have to, because we'll see each other in heaven. Heaven is a beautiful place, and, and that's where you go when you die. It's peaceful there, and it's happy. And everyone that you love, everyone that you miss is there waiting for you. You know, I, I don't know if you remember this, but when you were really little, Daddy's mom died. And she's there, and you get to see her when you go in a hundred years. Okay, that sounds good. Will Amelia, the pet bird, be there? Yep, absolutely. She's probably there already with your grandma. Okay. And then uh, one kind of final scene at the end where the parents are, are kind of dealing with this together, talking it over. Joel says, hey, you okay, Julia said. Yeah. Oh, honey, I wish my mom was here to see how great she's turning out. Oh, yeah, I know. And I, I like thinking about her in heaven with that stupid bird. I kind of hate you for that. Oh, I love you. Come here. So what started out as this kind of silly conversation of how to explain to a little girl that her bird died turned into something way, way more than that. Joel, the more cynical husband even, by the end of it, grasped onto the idea that a hope beyond what death had taken from him could be out there. The idea that, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's there, and, and that helped him to cope and move on. So even as I criticize what we've done with this half-truth, I, I want to acknowledge the incredible amount of emotion and understandable motivation behind it. But I think death in America today, given how much we avoid it and put makeup on it, functions in a lot of the same ways as the destruction of Jerusalem. It's the massive, devastating reality that confronts us with a lot of uncomfortable realities that we tiptoe around and whitewash to avoid at all costs. Even at funerals, we can sometimes find it hard to talk about death. So we only focus on good memories from a person's life, even with the casket right in front of us. So the promise of heaven, this detached catch-all paradise, can easily be manipulated misunderstood and misapplied to comfort us in the face of that disaster, all the while ignoring the relationship with God behind that promise of eternal life that makes any of it even possible in the first place. We create a heaven where Christ isn't welcome when all that heaven really is, at least what we mean by heaven, is Christ's kingdom. So we have this half-truth that we put before us to assure us All will be well, even though we use that assurance to ignore what God actually says about life and death and judgment and hope and just cope and move past all of it. So there's just one example for you how how we can let the poking and prodding that God does through Ezekiel probe our own barriers that we've put up. As you open its pages and walk through that journey afresh, How can you let the Lord shock and shake you up and probe into the subtle ways that you've been keeping yourself from him? Last week, we started out exploring some of the things Ezekiel is already known for, the goods and the bads of those first impressions. While it's good for us to be aware of this strange style and otherworldly journey it takes us through, it's not good for us to let the weirdness of it all keep us from engaging the message. 
While it's good to be familiar with the powerful promises of hope and visions like the Valley of Dry Bones, we miss out so much when we separate the section of judgment from the section of hope. In fact, it's the progression, the relationship between the sections of the book that showcase some of the unique contributions the book of Ezekiel brings to the Christian message. While we may subtly manipulate what God has said in Scripture for our own purposes, the book of Ezekiel pokes and prods and probes the way that we have misunderstood what that relationship with God really entails, how those promises really play themselves out. While we shut the judgments of God out of our heads because we don't want to deal with the discomfort, Ezekiel insists that we actually need those lines drawn in the sand, that justice of God on earth is actually part of our redemption. So in the spirit of probing our subtle sins, I want to close this out by praying the words of a hymn with that focus. Kind and merciful God. Kind and merciful God, we have sinned in your sight. We have all wandered far from your way. We have followed desire. We have failed to aspire to the virtue we ought to display. Kind and merciful God, we've neglected your word and the truth that would guide us aright. We have lived in the shade of the dark we have made when you willed us to walk in the light. Kind and merciful God, we have broken your laws and in conduct have veered from the norm. We have dreamed of the good, but the good that we could, we have frequently failed to perform. Kind and merciful God, in Christ's death on the cross, you provided a cleansing from sin. Speak the words that forgive, that henceforth we may live by the might of your Spirit within. Kind and merciful God, bid us lift up our heads and command us to rise from our knees. May our hearts now be changed and no longer estranged through the power of your pardon and peace. Amen. Special thanks to Andrew Horning, who handles the audio mastering and music for The Rebind. He's actually the one who introduced me to that hymn in college. We still have so much to glean from the book of Ezekiel, especially as we move past the overviews to really dig into the chapters. So be sure to check it out next week. We'll see you then.